start off by telling you uh, a man named David, a young shepherd boy, uh, was a curious young man. You've probably, if you've read a little bit of the Old Testament or if you've heard some stories, you might have heard about David. He developed some courage as a shepherd fighting off lions and bears. And then one day, surprisingly, uh, a prophet named Samuel showed up at the house. David had a lot of older brothers and Samuel anointed David, called him out as the future second king of Israel, which was a shock because he's the youngest and it's something that would be for the older brothers. But this is the David that defeated Goliath. This is the David that was best friends with Jonathan. This is the David that honored that first king, Saul, even though Saul tried to kill David numerous times. This is the David that God declared is a man after my own heart who will do all my will. And this is the David that was promised from his line would come the Messiah, the Savior of Israel. If David were alive today, we would call him the golden child. He would be the sanctified saint. He would be the perfect model Christian. I mean, this is a guy... Who, he's, a God, he's a man after God's heart. You would look at him and say, man, this guy's heart is, is pure. I mean, for certain. I mean, he just worships God. This is, it can't be possible that this guy would ever have an idol in his heart. Or is it possible? This morning, we're going to talk about idols of your heart. As you can see on the screen, Idols of Your Heart. I understand, as I thought about that title, it's not a positive, feel-good title, is it? Can you guys hear me okay? Am I coming out loud enough? Good. Okay. It's not a positive, feel-good title. In fact, I would almost equate it to the 18th century classic by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You ever heard that one before? I mean, it's the sermon that some would say sparked the first great awakening here in America. Revival came about because of that sermon. Maybe we need more sermons like that. Maybe today is your lucky day. (laughs) Well, I say all the time, revival does begin in our own hearts. And when God does a work in us, and we humble ourselves and we pray and we reach out to those around us in our circle of influence, God can do and does many revivals all the time in families and in friends. So here we are. We're going to dive into this title, Idols of Your Heart. It might get personal. I'm just going to tell you that right now. But that's what it's supposed to do if God is truly speaking to you. And I pray that I would become less and he would become more. So let's do that. Let's take a time, a quick moment here, and just pray for this message. Father, may it come out just the way you planned. Father, as I prayed for your spirit to teach me so that I can teach them, God, may they hear your words, may they hear truth, may they be encouraged, and may they know that you love us. You love us. You love us so much you sent your son Jesus to die for us. 
You gave us Your Spirit to dwell in us as a guarantee. Father, I pray that we would hear this message and we would respond in worship. In Jesus' name. And the church said nice and loud. Ah, I can hear you. Fantastic. We begin right away in 2 Corinthians 6.1. We've been going through the book of 2 Corinthians. If you missed any of the messages, they're on our, our YouTube and our Facebook site and uh, you can, our page. And uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is where we're at. If you would like to open up a Bible, um, there's probably a blue Bible in a chair in front of you. There's some in the back. They're free if you'd like to take it home with you. It's yours. 2 Corinthians 6.1, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. He says, we work together with him, that's God. We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Understand that Paul started this church in Corinth. It's a city. There's a church there. He's writing to them. Again, this is 2 Corinthians. He's written to them before. The first letter was not kind. They were really out of line with some of the things that they were doing in the church. So he's writing to them again. He's encouraging them. He's saying, we work together with God. We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Which beckons this question, do you take God's grace lightly? What grace are we referring to here? It's salvation. Completely free, no strings attached. You can't work your way into heaven. It's a gift from God. And Paul explained this very simply in 2 Corinthians 5. He said, for our sake he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It sounds like a song we might have sang recently. (laughs) Yeah, we did this morning. But then the verse I told you last week to memorize, the verse that you should memorize is verse 17 in chapter 5. The verse says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if your identity is in Christ, then there's good news because you are a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And anytime you feel like, get the word feel, anytime you feel like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to hell, I don't know if I'm sad, I don't know if I'm forgiven. You You don't think about the feeling, you think about the truth, who you are in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. You're a new creation. Of course you are saved. Of course you are forgiven. Of course God loves you. God's grace, complete forgiveness of all your sin, not to be taken lightly, not something to put on the back burner of your life, not something just to feel good about and then go about your life. Grace is life-changing, and your actions should always be reflecting His grace in your life every day. Amen? Yes. Paul then says in verse 2, he quotes Isaiah, the prophet of the Old Testament. He quotes Isaiah 49, verse 8. He says, for he, and that is, God was speaking through Isaiah, he uh, says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. So Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, quoting an Old Testament prophet. He quotes it, and then he comments on it. His comment is this, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Like, it's now. I love it. I'll give you a little background on Isaiah, by the way. Isaiah the prophet uh, was around 750 B.C., which is about 750 years before Jesus was born. 
He prophesied or spoke to God's people from God. He heard God's message. He spoke to the people of Israel. Israel at that point was a split kingdom. There were ten tribes of the twelve in the north, a couple south in Judah, and they were split and they were not obeying God. And Isaiah shared a lot. In fact, the Old Testament, um, the New Testament writers quote Isaiah, I read this, quote Isaiah more than all the other prophets combined. So you can see Isaiah quoted all the time in the New Testament. And he has all kinds of prophecies of the Messiah. He spoke about the Messiah a lot, and he brings hope. But here's something you should know about prophets when they spoke in the Old Testament, and Isaiah um, as well, is that when they would relay God's message, they weren't really concerned about the timing of it all. The chronological, they didn't really write chronologically. When we read it now, we like chronological order. We like when it's going to happen. But they didn't write like that. We talk about this on Wednesday night because we're going through the book of Revelation. And a lot of people like to look at Revelation and say, oh, look, it's chronological. This happens, and this happens, and this happens. But we're saying, no, John wrote prophetically. He didn't think about when it was going to happen. He just wrote what he saw. And so in Isaiah 7.14, a verse you, you are familiar with because of Christmas, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. How many of you have ever heard that verse before around Christmas time? Yeah, we talk about that because it's talking about the birth of who? Jesus, that's right. And Isaiah wrote about this 750 years before Jesus was born. So we know Emmanuel is Jesus here. But if we keep reading in the context of the entire chapter 7, you'll see that there's actually two sons being referred to. Not just Emmanuel, but there's also another son. And it turns out, when you read the whole chapter, it's Isaiah's own son, his, his, the son that he, his, his wife gave birth to. So his son is there, and he's actually going to experience something in his lifetime that Isaiah prophesied about. My point is this. Prophets wrote what God told them, but they didn't always understand of the timing of when it would happen. But when it did happen... Paul says, I'm going to make sure you know about it. And that's what we see happening here. In verse 2, he says, Behold, now is the favorable time. This is what Isaiah wrote about. It's happening now. It already happened. It's the day of salvation. I love Paul's urgency. Don't you? I mean, this is how I coach basketball. I shared with you last week, I'm a basketball coach, and sometimes uh, I get a little beside myself. Sometimes I display some, some erratic behavior. I preached last week, I, or it was last week or whatever, and I, and I said, you know, sometimes I'm a, I'm a little crazy out there, and then, you know, three of you showed up at my next game. So <laughs> I, 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 I saw that, and I simmered down a little, you know, just to... <laughs> Thankfully, the refs that day were, were favorable. But uh, no, so uh, I, I get a little crazy, but Paul... Um, when I coach, I, I, I'm like Paul, I'm like urgent, man. Like I see players go through the motions and I raise my voice and I get on them and I say, we're not doing that today. We're not going through the motions. We're going we're gonna to do this like it's a game. My son's here watching right now and he would tell you this is true. That's what Paul is doing. 
He's telling the church, listen, it's now. The day of salvation is now. It's urgent. And then he goes on to say in verse 3, we put no obstacle in anyone's way. Their ministry had no obstacles. He says that no fault will be found in our ministry. And then I encourage you to go home and read 4 through 10. I didn't include it today because all of it illustrates what Paul and his ministry partners went through to bring the gospel to the world. They traveled all over the Mediterranean Sea, planting churches, and all that they went through is right there in verses 4 through 10. In great detail, he shows how self-sacrificing he truly was to win people to Christ. It was amazing. It is amazing. And then he ends this passage with verses 11, 12, and 13. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us. But you are restricted in your own affections. And then he says in return, I speak as if to my own children, widen your hearts also. Open your hearts. Paul's heart was wide open, no restrictions, nothing was holding him back. On the contrary, the Corinthians had restrictions. Something was holding them back. It was their affections. Now what does that mean, exactly? You might read that, and I probably have read it before and never really thought much about it, but when you dig into it a little bit, when you look at that, that word there, the, the translated word for us in English is affections, but the original word written in Greek would imply something deeper than just our feelings. I mean, it's the deepest emotion or belief that you have. It is the thing that matters to you most. And Paul recognized that some things in the Corinthian Christians were more important than God. They were, their, their heart cared more about some things in the world than Jesus. And we would call those things idols. Idols. They had lots of idols in their hearts. John Calvin famously said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Just think about that. I mean, he nailed it, didn't he? The human heart. Our hearts are idol factories, constantly producing idols. Multiple idols on a daily basis are fighting in your heart for first place, aren't they? What is an idol? Simply put, an idol is anything in your life that's more important than God. That's the simplest definition I can give you. It's anything in your life that's more important than God. The first commandment, by the way, says you shall have no other gods before me. If you have an idol in your heart, you're breaking the first commandment. What's more important than God? What idols are capturing your hearts? Well, I would say they all stem from three things. You, your desires, your people, and your possessions. And think of, I mean, we could just list, right? The, the list would be endless of all of the different idols that stem from you, your people, your possessions. And how do you determine if you have an idol in your heart. 
Like that's, we, we can't just be surfacy about this. Like, how do you determine? Like, how do you know if you have an idol in your heart? I suggest you play this game, you may have played it before, called Would You Rather? It's a simple game where you just ask a question and then you have a discussion. Would you rather have a cook or a maid? That's a fun thing to think about. Would you rather be Batman or Spider-Man? I mean, it's, it's, it's anywhere, right? Would you rather put a stop to war or end world hunger? I mean, it's, it's a fun game to play, but I, I have a Christian version for you today. Would you rather pray or play on your phone? Would you rather chew on God's word or chew on your favorite meal? Would you rather sing holy songs or secular songs? Would you rather upgrade your living or upgrade God's church? Would you rather be fishing for fish or fishing for men? I had to put that last one in there for me. (laughs) Questions like that help determine the status of your heart, but only if you're going to be honest with yourself will you ever discover the idols of your heart. You'll never discover the idols of your heart unless you're honest with yourself. And if you can't be honest with yourself, then just ask your family and friends. They'll tell you what your idols are. And if you've got kids that are a little older, they'll definitely tell you, because they tell the church, they tell everybody, don't they? Your kids always tell your business when you don't want them to. This might make us uncomfortable, because... When you think about what's going on in your life, I understand. I know what's going on in my life. And you might know that you're relying on something more than God. You might know that you're relying on someone more than God. And that's between you and God. It's the idol of your heart. And I think a lot of preachers would probably stop at this point and move on because they don't want to offend someone. They don't want to make you squirm in your chair. I'm certainly not Jonathan Edwards, but they would know, um, they might even move on and, and say something to make you feel better about yourself. I've really not, I'm really not like those preachers. I may have been early on, but the older I get, the more I realize the urgency of being honest with God and getting to the heart of the matter. And I'm going to dig a little deeper because I want you to put God first in your life. I want to be the shepherd that cares about you and leaves the 99 to find you. And I think we have a lot of others in this church that care about you and will pray for you. I don't want you to have idols in your heart. I've said for a while now, I want this to be a hospital church where you can come and actually find healing. Healing doesn't happen, though, just because you identify the idol. So you can take some time and you can, you can search and do a, a, you know, a moral inventory. You can do that and you can find the idol. You can find the idols. But that's just the beginning. Jesus called it, what's the, called, called all this the good and bad fruit in your life. And then he talked about digging deeper. Jesus said in Luke 6.43, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. And then he says, The good person 
out of the good treasure of his heart will produce good. The evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you can see what Jesus is saying here. He taught a simple truth, and this is how I say it. Bad roots equal bad fruits. Good roots equal good fruits. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Yes, it's important to know what you are idolizing. What are those bad fruits? But it's more important to dig down deeper and know why. What they are. Why do you have that? All good counselors, Christian or secular, seek to find out the root cause. The root cause, the core issue, the heart of the matter. That's the key. Why do you do what you do? What is it that's going on in your heart? And I think it's really important to know this answer. How did that idol get in there in the first place? Don't you want to know that? How did that idol get in there in the first place? I'm going to suggest one possible way from James. James says this in chapter 1. I think I have this verse up here for you. For each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. I I really like how James illustrates this for us. It begins with a seed of a desire. The desire that you have within you is a seed, and when the temptation comes, it then bears bad fruit, sin, death. See it? So, you want something, you desire something or someone, and then, shocker, the temptation comes to fulfill your desire. You're enticed, you're lured in, and then you give in. And then it gets ugly and uglier. You get guilt, shame, and then consequences. Because there's consequences. This is how an idol gets into your heart. Does it sound familiar? I think if you look at the things in your life and you realize, man, yeah, that's how it it started. That's what happened. I had a desire. I was tempted. I gave in. And then it got ugly. So what's the solution? I want to help. I give you the solution. Some possible solutions. The first one, build a time machine. Go back in time when the temptation came. (laughs) And I only say, I'm kidding, but I, I say this because more desires and temptations will come your way, won't they? Every day they come. Every day. So here's what you do when they come. You take captive every thought and you make it obedient to Christ. Paul wrote that in 2 Corinthians 10. We'll get there. Verse 5. Then, you also pray. You pray and you ask God to help you escape and endure it. I mentioned that last week. That's 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation can overtake you. God will provide a way out. He will help you endure it. And then the other thing is, you can have an accountability partner. If you know that you're susceptible to temptation, do you have an accountability partner? 
Do you have a group of people that love you, care for you, that will check up on you and ask you the hard questions? That's important. Don't let the root form is the first solution. Don't even let it form. Pluck the seed out before it even grows a root. The second solution is, how do we deal with the root that's in there? This bad root that's deep down in your heart and keeps producing bad fruits and you don't want it anymore. How do you deal with it? How do you get rid of it? Well, you got to dig down and get rid of the root. You cannot permanently remove the idol of your heart through self-discipline. And this is where a lot of people try. They become codependent on certain things, certain programs, certain people. And it's self-discipline. You can't do it on your own. Just to give you an example of how, how I see it often at this time of the year. People come to church in January, first time. They're trying something new, trying to make a, a, a better commitment to God, put Him first. This is self-discipline. They're coming on their own abilities. And then the idols of their heart begin to press them more for time, for other things. And then every Sunday, coming to church becomes once a month. Every day reading the Bible becomes once in a while. Every day praying becomes a last resort. Self-discipline, this is why I put this picture up here, is like picking the dandelion. Does it go away? No. The dandelion will grow back. You've got to get the root out, don't you? You've got to get the whole root out. How do you do that? It's not... It's not going to be solved in one Sunday message. It's a process. It's talking to a counselor, perhaps, or a trusted friend, or a small group. It's being in a place of honesty and prayer and accountability. And sometimes that sucker takes a while to get out of there, doesn't it? You've got to get it out, though. Then, when it's gone, now you plant a new seed. And that should be God's word. God's Word is the seed that you want to plant to develop good roots and good fruits. His Word brings truth and healing and hope and transformation. I've seen it time and time again. Good roots equal good fruits. Let's come back to David, the golden child, the man after God's heart. You thought, oh man, this guy could never do wrong, right? Then you keep reading in the Bible in 2 Samuel and you realize, whoa, David. One day he was sitting on the rooftop enjoying the spring sunshine and the king, as the king he had the best view of Jerusalem. This view included everybody else's homes. And as he gazed out over his kingdom, he happened to catch a beautiful woman taking a bath. Her name was Bathsheba. I don't think there's a relation there. but And he watched her. Yes, she was naked, taking a bath. And in that moment, he was tempted by his sexual desire. You can see it, right? We live in a culture today where sex is everywhere. Always trying to capture our eye. 
Lust is a very big problem. Pornography, even a bigger problem. So here he is tempted by a sexual desire. He inquires, which I don't think was the sin. He inquires, who is this woman? Let's find out more. She's pretty. Let's, let's see. And he turns out, the report is back. She's married to Uriah. So right there, David has a choice. Take captive every thought, make it obedient to Christ. No temptation to seize me except what's common. I can get out of this. God can help me. Does he do that? No. He pursues her. A man after God's own heart faced temptation and failed. So what does that say to us? It doesn't matter how strong of a Christian you think you are. You need God to help you. You need the Holy Spirit to walk with you. Anybody can fall. Anybody can fail. 2 Samuel 11 records David took Bathsheba into his home. The result was she became pregnant. To cover it all up, he has her husband killed. I mean, it's going from bad to worse. The consequences are just beginning, by the way. The child is born. Seven days later, it dies. A little later, David's son, Absalom, conspires against his father, overtakes the kingdom for a time. His life is upside down because the idols of our heart are destructive. Do you see why I'm being so urgent about it? Why it's so important that we have clean hearts? Now, the story doesn't end there for David. He fessed up because he messed up. And God cleaned him up. And I encourage you to read his whole confession written in the Bible in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 starts off by saying, Have mercy on me, O God. This is David's words. Following this great sin, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. And then my favorite verse, 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. David asked God for a clean heart. Like we did this morning in our prayer time, after singing, he wanted a clean heart, a heart free of all idols. Because he knew his weakness. It's important to know your weakness. Bad roots equal bad fruits. But he also knew that God was his strength. And good roots equal good fruits. So do you know your weaknesses? Do you know what your unholy desires are? And do you know God is your strength? Psalm 73, 26 told us this morning, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I encourage you to keep praying, keep asking God to strengthen you, and uh, to overwhelm you with his love, as we prayed this morning already. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge him. He makes your path straight. Keep praying. Asking God to give you wisdom when you make decisions. And if you, if you messed up, then you fess up like David. And you ask God to create in you a clean heart. And God will do that. And above all, keep renewing your mind with God's Word. Keep reading 
the Bible. Even if you don't understand it, just keep reading it. The Holy Spirit has a way of teaching us, opening our eyes and seeing the truth. Keep the Word. When you have the Word, it develops the root in you, the good roots. And then you'll begin to see. Transformation will happen. Your mind will start thinking differently. And then all of a sudden, you'll start acting differently. That person that annoys you so much, instead of talking behind their back, you might actually start praying for them. That would be transformation, wouldn't it? That would be a good fruit from a good root. Think of the countless ways that God can change your heart and change everybody around you. Good roots equal good fruits. Love and joy and peace and patience. Fruits of the Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word today, how it will impact us. I guess is uh, time will tell, Lord. I know your word doesn't come back void. I know your word, when planted on good soil, will produce a crop, 30, 60. It's, it's unimaginable, Lord, what you can do in our lives when we establish good roots. Father, I pray for healing. And I pray for, for this church and these people to take seriously Seek their own hearts. Find out why. And find healing. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.